You can take your Bibles and turn them with me now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. I just want to say it's uh, really good to see all of you this morning. Great to see our regular folks. Great to see our visitors. Great to see our our, um, mission team back from Honduras. It's always great to send you off to ministry, but it's always good to have you come back uh, as well. And look forward to hearing more about what God did through that trip uh, next week. Uh, We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. You know, we all love spiritual mountaintop experiences. Those experiences where we are refreshed and renewed spiritually, where we feel energized and inspired and motivated for God, where we've learned much about God. Uh, where we've been drawn closer to God, or we've experienced Him in a way that we never have before. Sometimes we might have a spiritual mountaintop experience at a retreat, conference, a camp, on a mission trip. Some of you know about that. And all of those can be wonderful times that God can use to bless us. But the thing about mountaintop experiences is that they don't last. Uh, Sooner or later, we've got to come back down from the mountain, Uh, And it's back to the normal grind of life, back to the reality of what we're used to, back to the life that we're called to. And sometimes it isn't pretty. Sometimes we just want to stay on the mountain and just live there. That's probably how Peter, James, and John felt. Last week, in last week's sermon, we, we left those three with Jesus on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. It was the ultimate mountaintop experience as the three disciples saw Jesus revealed in all of his divine glory. They saw him transform. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white, recalling the book of Exodus from the Old Testament where Moses went up the mountain and and, and due to his close communion with God, his very face shone. It reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the sun. And yet what we saw last week was that with Jesus, it's different. Jesus is not like the moon reflecting the sun's dazzling light. Jesus himself is the sun with light emanating from his very being because Jesus is not a mere reflection of the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is God in the flesh. And then we saw last week how these three disciples suddenly see two of the greatest figures in Old Testament history, Moses and Elijah, representing the two great divisions in Scripture, the the law and the prophets. They appear, and they're talking with Jesus about Jesus' departure, Jesus' exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. And the presence of Moses and Elijah demonstrate that all of the law and all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament, pointed to Christ and was about him and his mission. And Peter wanted to make that mountaintop experience last. He wanted to set up shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus and just bask in this moment and let it go on and on. But the voice of God the Father is suddenly heard saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's as if the Father is saying, Peter... You haven't been listening to my son. The first time he talked about his death, you rebuked him, Peter. And now he's talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, his exodus that the law and the prophets have testified about. And you just want to stay on the mountain. But there's still work to do, Peter. There's still a mission to accomplish, Peter. And it won't be accomplished by staying on the mountain as awesome as this is. 
Mountaintop experiences are good, but they aren't meant to last forever. Mountaintop experiences teach you and encourage you and equip you for the things that are coming next. And there's still a mission for Jesus to fulfill. And there's a mission for the disciples to fulfill. And there are still lessons for the disciples to learn. So, with that said, why don't you stand with me now as we read God's Word. We like to stand uh, at Harbin's for our scripture readings out of reverence and respect for the Word of God. And let's leave the mountaintop with Jesus and Peter and James and John, and let's descend with them into the valley and see what awaits us. Awaits us. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they being Jesus and the three disciples, they come to the rest of the disciples, the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning as we search your word for truth. Father, this is the means, this is your revelation, this is the way that you speak to your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak, O Lord that you would open our ears and open our eyes to hear what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I felt like a complete and utter idiot. It wasn't the first time I'd felt that way. In fact, I've grown rather accustomed to feeling that way over the years. On this particular occasion, the year was 2012. And I had just recently moved to Alaska to take on a pastoral position at Petersburg Bible Church. 
And one of the things that I was intimidated about in coming to this church was the people. I'm a city boy. I'm a suburbanite. And here I was, a small island, 3,000 people. You can only get in by plane or boat. And I'm surrounded by fishermen and hunters and guys who cut down trees and build houses with their bare hands and seem quite able and quite self-sufficient. And it was intimidating to make relationships with them because I can't do any of that stuff. I couldn't even understand the stuff that they were talking about. I'd be in a circle of guys and we're having a conversation about commercial fishing, about boats and nets, about mechanical stuff, about types of fish. Actually, I should say, they were having the conversation. I was just standing there smiling and nodding and trying hard to fit in. I hated not feeling adequate. I hated having to call the guys in the church for help. I hated not being able to do it all myself. We all know what that feels like. We are often ashamed of our inadequacies. We don't like feeling incapable. We have this drive where we want people to think that we are competent. And sometimes we might even try to hide our incompetence, maybe throwing in a word or a phrase in a conversation that makes it seem like we know more than we really do. We hate feeling inadequate, and we hate feeling like we have to depend on someone else. And in one sense, that that can be okay, like in school or in the workplace or when you're learning a skill or a task, it's good to want to get to a place of competency and ability where you can do it on your own and you don't need help anymore. But that attitude becomes a very dangerous thing when we transfer it into the spiritual realm, to our walk with Christ, to our discipleship. And for some of you, what you're about to hear in the next few minutes might be hard But for many of you, my my prayer is that this will be liberating and life-changing. So let's jump right in. This, This story about Jesus delivering this boy from the demon teaches us three critical things about Christian discipleship. And the first thing that we see is the inadequacy of the disciples. The inadequacy of the disciples. As Jesus and the three disciples descend back down the mountain... I am struck with how the glory revealed on the mountain of transfiguration is contrasted now with the spiritual darkness found in the valley. Heaven and earth are real and exist simultaneously, but now is not the time for Peter and the disciples to enjoy the full experience of the kingdom. That's going to come later on. For now, they must leave the world of glory. And they must come down into the valley, back into a fallen world, and do the hard labor of gritty, tough, rough ministry. And while the three disciples were enjoying a glorious experience with Jesus on the mountain, we discover that the nine remaining disciples had the exact opposite experience. You can look at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. There is trouble and strife and chaos going on at the foot of the mountain. It reminds me of, of Moses when he was on, on, the, on the mountain of God in the book of Exodus, and he's, and he's having this experience with God, and it's a wonderful thing, and he's getting the law and the commandments, and he comes down to the bottom of the mountain. What does he find? Confusion and chaos and unbelief. And notice who's present here. The scribes. 
the religious leaders. You would think by now the disciples would have gotten a restraining order against these people. They are always stalking the disciples, following them around, following Jesus around, and they are arguing with the disciples. The scribes are enemies of Christ, and they're, they're, always, they're always popping up seemingly at inopportune times, and they're trying to build a case against him. And one of the things that the religious establishment constantly challenged was the authority of Jesus, the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, they questioned that he was actually from God. In fact, Mark uh, chapter 3, you see the scribes accusing Jesus of being possessed by the devil. Any powers he has over demons is satanic, they said. This is all a sham. This is all a fraud. And what do we find here in Mark chapter 9? Jesus' disciples are trying to cast out a demon. The disciples here now, they're trying to establish the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry. They're trying to do what Jesus does, and the pressure is on. And the scribes are watching. They've got their notepads out. They're, They're writing things down here. And these disciples are trying to cast out this demon, and nothing they do is working. And surely this is just more fuel on the fire of the accusations of the scribes. In addition to the embarrassment and the frustration that the disciples must have felt, surely they were also confused. Because they were not inexperienced in dealing with demons. Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus appointed twelve, these twelve disciples, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Or three chapters later in Mark chapter 6, it says, and they cast out many demons. But now, all of a sudden, they can't do it. They had every expectation that just like in past situations, they would be successful in their ministry. And so now, they're shocked by this. They're surprised. That's why at the end of the story, they're taking Jesus aside and saying, what's going on? Why can't we do this? They could do this in the past, but now they find themselves totally inadequate for the task. And the inadequacy of the disciples is highlighted all the more when Jesus shows up. Look at verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now this is unusual because the pattern in the gospel of Mark is for Jesus to do a work, to do a miracle first, and then people are amazed. But what we see here in verse 15 is a reversal of that pattern. Jesus shows up and immediately everyone's amazed and the focus is on Jesus. Hopes are raised. You can imagine the crowd, they're just, they're thinking the disciples were failures. I'm done with them. The scribes are totally useless. They've got nothing. Nobody can help. But here's Jesus. Could could he do something about this? And so now the spotlight is put on Jesus, which is where it should be on. Look at verse 16. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not adequate. The disciples were able to do this in the past. Why can't they do it now? One key verse that we have to consider as we ponder this is Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Just a few 
chapters back, it says, Jesus called the twelve and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Where did the power to cast out demons come from? It came from Jesus. It was His power. It was His authority. And as they relied on that power, as the power of Jesus was working through them, they were successful in their ministry. They they didn't have any inherent power of their own. You see, it's crucial to recognize that it's not just in Mark chapter 9 where where, where, where they're failing that the disciples are inadequate. It's also in Mark chapter 6 where they are succeeding that they are inadequate. Don't miss that. The disciples were always inadequate. That's why they need to be given the power and the strength to do this in the first place. The means by which you faithfully accomplish the ministry that God gives you is through the power of God. And something happened between Mark 6 and Mark 9. Perhaps the successive ministry had gone to their heads. Perhaps they began to get cocky. And they're beginning to think now they've got some sort of power in and of themselves. Jesus gave them some help in the beginning, but okay, Jesus, we've got it now. We can take it from here. In fact, if you're still in Mark 9, you'll see in just a few verses, down in verse 34, that the disciples are arguing among themselves. And what are they arguing amongst themselves about? Which one is the greatest? Seriously? Instead of exulting and enjoying and seeking to magnify the greatness of Jesus, they're interested in their own greatness. And that's where the fall begins for all of us. These disciples are trying to do the work of Jesus apart from the power of Jesus, and they fall flat on their faces. Because the only means by which you faithfully accomplish the ministry that God gives you is through the power of God. It's why... Sunday mornings between 10.30 and 10.45 are the most terrifying 15 minutes of the week for me. Because I know that without God's favor and without God's help, all you're going to get from this pulpit is 45 minutes of nonsense because Deemer Webb's got nothing and is nothing. And some of you are giving that a hearty amen. The means by which Pastor Steve and I can come up here Sunday after Sunday and faithfully preach the Word in such a way that it brings encouragement, enlightenment, conviction, and blessing is through the power of God. The means by which you faithfully fulfill your ministry of motherhood that God has called you to, ladies, is through the power of God. The means by which you faithfully fulfill your ministry as a husband and as a father, men, is through the power of God. The way that you preach the gospel to lost people faithfully, the way you minister to a hurting friend, the way you overcome sin and live a holy, God-honoring life is through the power of God. Some of you have been called by God to be a mother or a father, and you are feeling woefully insufficient and inadequate, and you hate that. You want to be adequate. You want to be sufficient. Some of you have been called to various other ministries and forms of service, and you feel incredibly weak, and you despise that. 
Some of you are called by God to serve and honor Him in situations that you feel are impossible. And you think, I can't do this. I can't do this for 15 minutes, let alone 15 years. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the power to do this thing, O Lord. And you feel guilty and bad for feeling that way. But my challenge to you this morning is not to despise your weakness, but embrace it. Because if your attitude is one of weakness and inadequacy in the things that God has called you to do for Him, guess what? You are learning one of the most important and powerful lessons of discipleship. The, the key to success in ministry and discipleship, and by ministry, I hope you realize by now that I'm not simply talking about what Steve and I do. I'm talking about all the situations that God places you in every day to serve others as His ambassador in the world. And by discipleship, I mean living for God in a way that honors and glorifies Him. Living a life full of love and holiness. One of the most important principles of success in ministry and discipleship is to recognize that you are woefully inadequate and woefully insufficient for any task that God has called you to do. Because it's only when you turn from yourself that you can begin to turn to the only one who can give you what you need. And so we move from the inadequacy of the disciple to the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 19, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. This has been a test of faith for the disciples, and they failed. And the disappointment of Jesus should not be surprising because the author of Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? By the way, just as, as an aside, I, I just find I'm just so struck by that question that Jesus asked. Why does Jesus ask that question? He doesn't need that information. I mean, does, does he have to gather all these facts before uh, before he can actually cast out the demon? I, I think this simply reflects something of the compassion of Jesus. He's not he's not just some sort of miracle dispenser, and this man is not coming to a power; he's coming to a person. And here we have Jesus entering into the pain of this father. That's not the main point, but it's just something I like that stuck out to me about Jesus. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. This demon through these seizures that is afflicting the boy has been trying to kill this boy for years through drowning or through burning. There's, there's open fires and, and, and wells and water everywhere. And his father, who's been trying to deal with this for so long, you can be sure that over the years he tried to help his son in all different kinds of ways, tried to find a solution. And then he tried to get help from the disciples, probably got his hopes up then, and it didn't work. And he's tried everything he possibly knows to try, and now he finds himself pleading with Jesus. Look at the end of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. The father is not sure if Jesus can do this. And I love Jesus' response 
in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can. Now this is one of these times where I w- I, I'm, I'm thankful for the word of God, but it would be also great if God gave us like a, a tape recorder or, you know, an uh, audio file uh, or video where I could, I could hear the, the, the tone of voice. And, and I'm, I'm, some people, when they see this, they think Jesus is just kind of being angry and stern and, you, know, you idiots, what do you, you know. I don't think Jesus is like that. I, I, think, I think there's probably a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit of a twinkle in his eye. Maybe a little bit of a incredulity, like, if you can, what are you, what are you talking about? Do, do you know who I am? If you can. And then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, here we get to one of those Bible verses that so often gets ripped out of context and it's, it's misunderstood. This verse is not saying what so many say it means. That God is some sort of cosmic genie, and if our faith is big enough and strong enough, and we rub that lamp hard enough, and we ask for whatever we want, we get it. Lord, you said all things are possible for the one who believes. So when this church service is over, I believe that when I walk out into that parking lot, there's going to be sitting there a brand new BMW with the keys in it, and my name on the registration. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not the point. Read the verse carefully. It's not saying you will get everything you want. I mean, if you want a biblical example, you can just go to 2 Corinthians 12 sometime and read about Paul's ailment, his thorn in the flesh. And he prays over and over again for God to take that thorn away, heal him. And it doesn't happen. Because God has a, a better plan for Paul. We actually don't know if, it was a, it was a, if the ailment was a, a physical ailment or if it was people, enemies, whatever it may be. But it was bad. And Paul didn't like it and he didn't want it. And God says no to that. The point is not that you and I are able to do anything we want because of our great faith and and our strong faith. That would actually be the opposite of what this passage is teaching. We can't do whatever we want. We can't have whatever we want. The disciples are learning that lesson big time. They and we are completely inadequate. The point is not that we can do whatever we want, but that Jesus can do whatever He wants. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The psalmist writes, remember what the man said to Jesus. He said, if you can. The discussion is not about the ability of man and what he can do. The discussion is all about the ability of Jesus. Jesus, who is the only one who can do the things that seem impossible to weak, frail, desperate, inadequate man. The reason why all things are possible for the one who believes is because when we believe, we are coming to the one who can do all possible things. It's not about the strength of your faith making things happen. It's about the strength of our God who is able to do the things that we are asking Him to do. And so therefore, we should never be timid to pray for something because we think it's too big for God, too impossible for Him to handle. If you have a disease, doctors say you're a goner, Modern medicine, 
can't save you, you still have somebody else to go to who is bigger than the doctor and big enough to handle it should he deem that wise. If you've got somebody in your family who's not a Christian and they are so hard-hearted and resistant to the gospel and it seems impossible that they would ever bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, remember that Jesus said about salvation, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We can bring all of these kinds of requests and prayers to God, and none of them are going to get God nervous. None of them are going to make him sweat, like, whew, this is a biggie. I'm not sure if I can handle this one. He is sufficient to meet every need, to even answer prayers that seem impossible, because even though we are inadequate, he is all-sufficient. That's the point of all this. We can do nothing. He can do all things. This story in Mark 9 is not about you. And what you can do. It's about him and what he is able to do. And if you need more evidence that this story is not a lesson about you having strong and perfect faith to make things happen, you need to look no further than verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, that is one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. John Calvin said about this man, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. You're tracking with that, aren't you? You know what that feels like. Nobody in this room has perfect faith. We all struggle to believe as we ought. Some of you are more ready to admit that than others. Some of you know full well that your faith is weak, frail, fickle, falling short of the kind of trust that our God is worthy of, that he deserves. And we realize that even in matters of faith, we in and of ourselves are inadequate in mustering up and generating faith. The man says, help my unbelief. You see, we are even dependent on God to awaken and grow faith in our hearts. And yet the good news is that God is not looking for perfect faith. Hear me now. Some of you need to hear this. God is not looking for perfect faith. He is looking for faith, however weak it may be, that is directed towards the one who is perfect. God is not looking for perfect faith. He is looking for faith that is directed toward the one who is perfect. This is the kind of faith that pleases God. Even the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, is a prayer that pleases God. Because it's directed towards Him. It's a prayer of faith that acknowledges our inadequacy and His sufficiency to meet all of our needs, even our need for faith. And Jesus doesn't rebuke the man with His weak faith. He doesn't chastise him or scold him. Instead, He moves in. He responds. He helps. He heals the boy. In the parallel account in Matthew 17, Jesus says, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, not big faith, not super faith, just a little faith, you can hold thousands of mustard seeds in your hand. They're small. Even that kind of faith leads to the moving of mountains, Jesus says, which was a, was a Jewish way of just saying doing things that are impossible. Why? Why, does that, why can that happen? Because it's not about you. And how awesome you are and how much faith you can muster up. Again, it's about the one to whom such faith is directed towards. 
It's the object of your faith that is the, the clincher. You can have strong faith in the Greek god Zeus. I mean, you can have just amazing, strong, intense faith in Zeus. And nothing will be accomplished. Why? Because Zeus is nothing. Because it's better to have mustard seed small faith in a big God who is real. Because the most important thing is not the size of your faith, but the size and power of the object of your faith. It didn't matter that this father's faith was weak. What mattered in the end was that that weak faith was directed towards the one who was strong and all-sufficient. And so that then flows into my third observation, and that's the necessity of prayer. The necessity of prayer. Go down to verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer. Now that's, that's very interesting. Oh, and, and, and the parallel account, Matthew, he, he, he chastises them for lack of faith. Faith, prayer, these things are working together here. They're connected. What does Jesus' response tell us about the disciples' efforts to minister to this boy? We know what they were doing. They were trying to cast out the demon. But now at the end, we finally realize the chief problem is what they weren't doing. (laughs) They were not praying. I wonder if that's anticlimactic to some of you. Seriously? They weren't praying? Is that it? Is that the lesson for me, Deemer? Yeah, that's it. And it's huge. They weren't praying. And if they weren't praying, then who does that mean they were relying on? Who were they putting their faith in? Prayer is an expression of reliance on God and the strength that He supplies. Think about this. Think think of it in our own lives. Why do we pray? We pray because we know we cannot accomplish things on our own. We pray because we don't want to lean on our own strength and our own understanding. And the reason why this demon could not be cast out is because the disciples were relying on their own strength and wisdom and understanding. If they would have just had but a, a mustard seed of faith, but they didn't even have that because their faith was in themselves and in their own sense of self-sufficiency. But the Christian life is counterintuitive in that while our natural instincts and self-centeredness wants us to lean on our own strength, we instead must come to grips with our own weakness. Earlier in this sermon, I challenge you not to despise your weakness, but embrace it. I go even a step further. I say not simply embrace it, but boast in it. Boast in it. And that seems really strange to some of you. Why would I boast in my weaknesses? Right? The world boasts in its strength. Christians are to boast in their weaknesses. I hate feeling inadequate. Now you're telling me just to boast in it, broadcast that? Earlier I had mentioned 2 Corinthians 12 and this ailment, this affliction that the Apostle Paul had. He called it a thorn in the flesh. And, and he said, 
in, first, in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly for my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus tells Paul first that, yes, Paul, you are weak. But guess what, Paul? I am strong, and my strength is sufficient for you. It will enable you to do things, to do all the things that I have called you to do, even in your weakness, as you rely on me and my strength through prayer. And Paul begins to boast in his weaknesses because his weakness becomes the staging ground for the power and the glory of Jesus to be put on display before him and before the world. And that's exactly what God intends for your life as well. These nine disciples at the foot of the mountain were overconfident in their own ability to do God's work. They somehow came to believe that the power to do this was now inherent within them. Yes, in the beginning Jesus helped them, but hey Jesus, we've got this now. We can finish this up on our own now. We don't need you anymore. And they arrogantly believed that they could heal the boy. Now, you and I may say... Well, man, it's a good thing that God didn't call me to a ministry of exorcism. I'm just a husband. I'm just a wife. I'm just a child. I'm just an employee on the job. I'm just an average church member. It's a good thing I don't need to do battle with demons. Oh, really? I find it very interesting that in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, writing to average church members average pastors, writing to average teachers and evangelists, writing to average husbands and average wives and average kids, writing to average workers with average bosses, after writing about how they are to do life and ministry and church together, he writes, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Oh, and by the way, a few verses later, he talks about the necessity of prayer. You are up against some wicked, invisible, bad dudes out there. You need to pray. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is not a single thing that God has called you to do that does not involve warfare against unseen powers and principalities and forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can count on that. All ministry is spiritual warfare, whether you're a preacher or a parent. Whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or whether you are being salt and light for Jesus in the marketplace. There are beings that are coming up against you seeking to stop you from glorifying God in your life. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil coming against us. And we are fools to think that we can live the kind of life God has called us to live apart from constant prayer and a reliance on God and His strength. And yet so many of us do that every day. So many Christians start their day 
with coffee, breakfast, news on the internet, rush out the door, flip on talk radio or some entertainment station during their commute, work all day, come home, eat dinner, collapse on the couch, watch TV, go to bed, and there's not been one minute of prayer and Bible squeezed in. And so many Christians live like that day after day after day after day. And maybe one or two days that week they carve out two minutes for God and then it's back to the grind, back to the important stuff. And folks, we are fools to think that we can be godly husbands and godly wives and godly parents and godly students and witnesses in the world with a spiritual life like that. We are as foolish as those Nine disciples in the valley. We are foolish to think we've reached a point in our life where we're like, yeah, God, I've got this Christian thing down now. I'll take over from here. And we may say, well, I I never say that. But we say it every time we neglect God and refuse to pray. We we, We say it every time we refuse to spend time in God's word, drawing strength from him because we are too busy. Friends, our actions speak louder than our words. We live like we think we are adequate, and we forget our complete inadequacy, and we forget our need. Now, if you're here this morning as a Christian, know that I am not condemning you. There there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These things are covered by the blood of Jesus. You need to know that. And know that if you're in this, if if you've struggled here, you're not alone. Every single person in this room, including myself, can can identify with failing to trust in God like we should. I don't stand here this morning on some, as like I'm in some ivory tower here, like I've got it all together. I preach to you this morning as a fellow failure, a fellow inadequate Christian. And if you're here this morning deeply convicted for your failures to trust God as you should, if you realize that you've trusted in yourself too much, the solution is not to wallow in a sense of condemnation and beat yourself up and have your eyes on yourself. Having your eyes on yourself, that doesn't help anybody. That's what got you into your mess in the first place. The solution is to turn our eyes away from ourselves and back to Jesus Christ and back to the gospel. To turn our eyes to Him in humility. To turn our eyes back to the good news. A gospel that says that in spite of our arrogance and unbelief, God sent Jesus into the world and died for those sins. He took the condemnation for those sins so that all who trust in Him won't be condemned. And so now, whether you've been a Christian for decades... Or if you came here this morning as an unbeliever, but now are finding faith awakening in your heart for the very first time, now is the time for us, with repentant hearts, to say to him what that desperate father said to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to do away with my tendency to trust in my own strength, in my own ability to be godly, in my own power to live as I ought. That's all unbelief, God. I recognize my inadequacy, and I recognize my desperate need for you this morning, and I repent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for... Mark chapter 9 and the things that you have been teaching us. 
these past couple of weeks about discipleship. And Father, I, we believe, help our unbelief, forgive our unbelief, help us to trust in you as we ought. Father, let us, let, help us to, to, to be done away with the days where we just, we just live day to day to day to day and we, commun- and we may say with our lips, yes, we trust God and yes, yes, we need God's help, but, but we don't really communicate that with our, our lives because we, we don't pray, we don't rely on you for strength, we don't go to your word, we operate out of the flesh. We, we, we do it probably more times than we even realize. So, Father, forgive us for that, and thank you that that forgiveness is available, that your son died for that kind of of faithlessness. And, Father, I pray for for anyone here this morning who has never, ever placed their trust in you for salvation. Oh, how relevant this message is, because the, the, the way to get into the Christian life in the first place, the, the way, uh, the, the, the beginning step in the journey is to recognize our inadequacy and that we have failed and that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right in the eyes of God. That we need to trust in the sacrifice of Christ and His shed blood on the cross. So, Father, I pray that if anyone here this morning has not trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, has not repented of their sins, Father, I pray that this would be the day that that would happen. And I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your mercy, Father. You are so good to us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.